0: In that moment, the baton was passed. In that moment, Jesus' ministry began and John's ended. And yet, as Matthew catches us up with John here in chapter 11, you're going to notice real soon that John has lost some of his boldness and conviction. He seems to have lost confidence. John has some questions. John has some doubt about Jesus. Jesus. Beloved, from Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what shall I compare this generation? They are like children in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played for the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We find John in prison. Back in chapter 4 in Matthew, um, he let us know very briefly that John had been arrested And Matthew, to this point, still hasn't told us why John was arrested. In fact, it's going to take till chapter 14 where we're going to find out why he's in prison. But I can tell you that now, if you don't know the story. The puppet king that Rome put up, Herod Antipas, ruler in Galilee, had taken a trip to Rome, you see. And while he was in Rome, he seduced his brother's wife. And in order to accommodate his seduction... He sent away quietly his own wife into exile so he could marry the the woman that he had seduced. And John the Baptist rebuked Herod for his bad behavior, for his sin publicly. Herod, we're told, wanted to kill John in order to silence him. But being afraid of the reaction of the people, he threw John into prison instead. Seven chapters later, from when we hear that John is in prison, chapter 4 to chapter 11, seven chapters later, and John is still rotting away in a cell, waiting. It's been months since John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John, however, is not following behind him, beaming with pride as his cousin continues to draw crowds, perform miracles, and teach about God. No. John is in prison, and he's having second thoughts about Jesus. We don't know exactly what was going on in John's mind and heart, but I think we can safely imagine what he was thinking, what he was feeling in that cold, dark cell. John was being confronted by the challenge of unmet expectations, I mean, you remember John's message out in the wilderness, don't you? Who can forget the sense of anticipation that he created through his no holes barred announcement of a new world order? How many people made that journey out into the desert and into the water all because of John's blazing rhetoric that change, that revolution was just around the corner? John's message of the kingdom to come shook up everyone and everything, religious leaders, politicians, and everyday citizens. John proclaimed that he was baptizing with water, but the king who was on the horizon was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John promised there would be two aspects to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It would be a one-two punch. There would be radical judgment like a mighty ax hitting the root of a tree like an unquenchable fire burning away the chaff. But there would also be mercy, a great cleaning up, a final setting of things right. But that's not how things seem to be developing since John passed the baton. If John had been a preview of the coming attractions... It was beginning to look like the feature film that was Jesus wasn't going to live up to the hype. No revolution had begun against Rome. Rome was still the master of Israel. Herod was still on the throne, not the son of David. Division within Israel persisted. People weren't rallying around Jesus. If anything, people didn't know what to make of him. Their opinions were divided. Added to this, Jesus wasn't baptizing anybody. Not even with water, much less fire. And what was Jesus doing, by the way, out in the sticks of Galilee? What about Jerusalem? What happened to the winnowing fork? The cleaning up of the mess, the gathering up of the wheat of the faithful... John had presented and packaged Jesus in a certain way, but Jesus was flat out not living up to John's advanced billing, to the expectation that John and others had for the Messiah and for the kingdom. Alone and in prison, doubt begins to set in for John. Looking from the outside looking at the outside from the inside of a prison cell, has changed John's perspective. And all he can perceive, it would seem, is failure. And it's not hard to understand, is it? I mean, John had come saying that he was the ambassador of not a king, the king. Being in prison was probably the last place that he thought he was going to end up. Worse still, the very reason he's in prison is because he declared his cousin was it, the one, the Lamb of God, so worthy of honor and praise that John himself was not worthy to carry his sandals or lace them up. And yet, as the days, as the weeks continue to pass, it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus isn't going to do anything to spring John from his cell, let alone pay him a visit. In his darker moments, John must have wondered if he had landed in prison for nothing, that he had got it all wrong, that his life, his ministry was a failure. Why am I still riding away in a jail cell as a captive if the Messiah has indeed come? So John sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Are you the one? The one who was to come? Does that kind of question, does a question like that convey a lack of commitment? Is John being unfaithful In asking such a thing? Or maybe we can relate to John today. Maybe we can relate this morning to having expectations that haven't been met. A prayer for healing that hasn't been answered. A release from a burden that hasn't been granted. How many of us here this morning are still waiting in some small or perhaps some big way for justice to still be done? For a wrong in our lives, in this world, to be righted? Or maybe like John, a sudden shift in your circumstances these days has led to a change in your perspective. You sit here, maybe you've been here for a couple of weeks... And it just, you can't get it out of your head. Prayer and worship used to come so easy. Prayer and worship used to come so easy. You could pray. You could worship so easily. It was so natural. You could see Jesus at work in your life. You heard his voice. You sensed his presence all the time. But now, now, there's nothing but silence. How did you get here? How did you get here? It feels like prison. Was all that stuff before? Was that just a fantasy? Was that just wishful thinking? Was I fooling myself? You sit here perhaps and a change in perspective has made you feel let down. Like John, you wonder, did I get it wrong? Have I failed? Beloved, nearly all of us, all of us go through periods of doubt or struggle with questions about our faith. Jesus, are you for real? Jesus, are you the one? Or as John adds on, should we expect someone else? It's important to entertain the question. To evaluate the alternatives for a moment. Jesus, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? To what, to whom else are we to look in the midst of our doubts, beloved, if not the will of God? Is basing our lives on the stars, on chance, on coincidence, on fate, any more secure or reliable? Has placing our confidence in our own will, our own wits, been more fruitful or transformative? For all of our ideas, for all of our progress, for all of our wealth and our success as human beings, are the problems of our world, are the struggles of our humanity, lesser or greater? Easier or more complex? Is it even possible Is it even possible to live without having to have faith in anything? If you're here this morning and you're married or you have kids, you know the answer to that is no. Marriage and child rearing is about faith. Is there any way to eliminate all doubt from our life? Again, if you are in any kind of relationship at all, you know that the answer to that question is no. Relationships require faith. Relationships oftentimes are filled with doubt. Can life have meaning, purpose, value, direction without either faith or doubt? No. Beloved, struggling with difficulties in and of themselves is not wrong. It is not something to be feared or to be ashamed of. What matters? What matters is where and in whom we look and find our answers. So in the throes of our uncertainty, let us pay attention to Jesus' response to John. (laughs) And his response may not be what John and may not be what we were looking for. Jesus... Points, he simply points to what he does. The sick were healed. The outcasts were made clean and brought into the community. Those who never heard anything about about God, could never understand it, could hear Jesus' teaching. The dead were raised. And most remarkable of all, don't miss it, the poor. The poor whom everyone assumed that God despised. The poor who seemed to count for nothing We're told the good news of God's love, forgiveness, and salvation. The poor of this world were welcomed into the kingdom. Jesus points to what he does because what he's doing is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of what would happen when God came to rescue his people and establish his kingdom. But don't miss the irony here. Jesus is telling John what he already knows. Matthew tells us in verse two of this chapter, he alerts us that in prison, John already heard what Jesus was doing. Why is Jesus giving John an answer he already knows? Because appearances, beloved, can be deceiving. The power of God's spirit was upon Jesus even if that spirit was not manifesting itself in the fiery ways that John had envisioned. These things, Jesus is saying to John, are only happening because I am the Christ. Perception isn't always reality. John had heard about Jesus' activity, and it seems clear that he himself is not all that certain that this is what the Christ should be doing. Beloved, what John learns, what we learn, and it's a tough lesson, it's not an easy one, is that what makes Jesus the Messiah is not measuring him against our criteria to see if he measures up. The one who saves us, this Jesus whom we would call Lord, is not the best example of a perception of value or a belief that we already have. Hear that. This Jesus whom we would call Lord, this one who saves us, is not the best example of a perception of value or a belief that we already have. Because if we've fallen and we can't get up, if we're broken and cannot fix ourselves, if we're lost and we cannot find our way, then our perception, our best solutions, our remedies are incomplete. Incomplete. I remember when I was younger and I was training to be a lifeguard, something counterintuitive that I learned. When you go out to save someone who's drowning, you keep a distance, usually have something between you. And as you approach them, you put that forward. But if that person advances on you, you push away and pull back. That doesn't sound like you're saving that person. But the idea is and the rationale is that when you're trying to save someone's life, when they're drowning, from their perspective, they're panicking. They think they have to grab onto you. They have to do whatever it takes to not drown. But in fact, what they're going to do if you keep going is they're going to put you under the water and you're going to drown with them. From their perspective, they think that's going to save them. They don't have the complete picture to understand what it really takes to be saved. And so you... Continue to advance that until they grab hold and let you pull them in. (laughs) Beloved, a person who is drowning doesn't tell the lifeguard you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Jesus is not the best example of our perception, our value, or our ideal. Because our vision, our lives, our perception, our sense of things is incomplete. That's the nature of why we need to be saved. And trying to make Jesus fit into our perceptions of salvation and freedom is like trying to make a square peg fit into a cross-shaped hole. And that's why Jesus goes on and says to John, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus isn't rebuking John for his doubt, thank God. And he doesn't rebuke us for ours. Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the one who never, ever, ever has the slightest doubt about me. Jesus doesn't scold John for having a tough time figuring him, figuring everything out. He doesn't deny that his ministry was surprisingly quiet, even as it was happening in seemingly out-of-the-way locations, away from the heart of the action, Jerusalem. What John doesn't realize is more is coming. More that will even be harder to reconcile. You could also translate this verse, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me this way. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And beloved, we are only a couple of weeks away till once again we are going to confront the offense, the scandal of the cross. Jesus is being kind and compassionate with John as he admits as much to the tension of it all. John is being called to live in that high and difficult tension of believing in Jesus as his Savior, even when Jesus did not save him from prison. And like John, we experience that very same tension of trusting in Jesus as the Savior, as our Savior, even when we are not saved in the way that we want from whatever afflicts us. The seeming contradiction of prayers that still not have been answered. The contradiction of healings that we are still waiting for. The contradiction of redemption that we still can't seem to find in our lives. If you don't know the end of John's story, it doesn't get much better from our perception. John never gets out of prison. In fact, John's going to lose his head, literally. It's going to be cut off at the request of a dancing girl who pleased King Herod. Brings us back again. Was John's hope? Is our hope in vain? Beloved, John's being in prison, even his eventual death, does not put him beyond the reach of Jesus. But this is not obvious at all for John or for us. Jesus, however, follows John in everything he does. Did you ever notice that? John comes preaching, Jesus goes preaching. John is arrested, Jesus is arrested. John is executed, and as we know, Jesus is going to be executed. It's true. Jesus didn't get John out of that jail cell. And so, on the surface from our perception, appearances would say that he abandoned John to prison. But beloved, below the water, at a deeper level, we know Jesus did not abandon John. Across the course of his life and death, Jesus joined John in arrest and in execution. Jesus did not avoid the suffering, the pain, the loneliness, the abandonment, or the death that John experienced. Jesus went through it all. And he came out the other side. That's the thing. That's the thing in the midst of our doubts, why our doubts are not bad, but it matters what we do with them, why we can't give up in the midst of our doubts and our questions. Because, beloved, while Jesus may not always live up to our expectations, while he may not always fit our perceptions of what salvation ought to look like, what Jesus consistently does is he transforms our expectations in the very act of fulfilling them. What John is going to discover, what we discover, what we celebrate on Good Friday, and most certainly on Easter Sunday, is that salvation is about more than conquering Rome. Salvation is about more than breaking free from the prisons of Herod. Jesus punches a hole through the greatest prison of all, death. And because he lives, John lives also. Because he lives, We will live also. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Our faith, like John's, has to live, still has to live with the contradictions and the tension. There will be days, and I do not take it lightly, I've had them myself. There are days when we have a hard time finding Jesus in our lives. But despite the appearances, despite our perceptions, we have a savior who is right here with us in the middle of our chaos. Jesus joined John in prison, and so he joins us in the depths of all human suffering. Jesus freed John from the presumption of failure and the eternal prison of death, and so he will free us from our doubts and our fears of the important thing is, that, is to understand that there's a difference between honest doubt and fickle faith. There's a difference between honest doubt and fickle faith. Jesus clarifies this difference as he turns to address the crowd as John's disciples leave. Notice how Jesus rebukes so many who had doubts about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see, Jesus asks. And with this question that he repeats in a couple of different forms, Jesus is making a distinction between the kind of question that John was asking him and the attitude of those who first resisted John's ministry in the desert and now continue to resist Jesus's. John was struggling to believe in the Lord's promises as realized in Jesus. But in his doubts, John kept wrestling. His very question was to Jesus. It was a means of cleaving to Jesus. In asking Jesus for clarification, John was calling upon Jesus to hold on to him. Don't let me go. And this, beloved, is honest doubt. It's the kind of doubt that we see expressed again and again in the Psalms, for instance. I mean, how many times in the same Psalm, the same Psalm, how many times in the same Psalm does the Psalmist express his great confidence in God? even as he shares how his own faith has begun to waver and fluctuate. The firmest faith may falter. Because faith is a gift. Doubts are not the enemy of faith. Doubts are not the enemy of faith unless we refuse to call upon the very grace that God gave us to trust and have assurance in the first place. Honest doubts bring us closer, not farther away from Jesus. But fickle faith, fickle faith is vastly different than this. Fickle faith is faith that's based upon my will, my terms, my rules. Jesus' description of fickle faith is perfect. Jesus' description of fickle faith is the picture of stubborn children who insist that everyone play only their games, and according to their rules. Such people in their relationship with God aren't wrestling with doubt as much as they are denying authority. Their belief in Jesus depends on what their circumstances are. If their life adds up to what they expected, to what they wanted. Such people pray and worship God when God dances to their tunes and displays power according to their definition of what constitutes success. Case in point, Jesus said, he gives a perfect analogy of fickle faith. Case in point, Jesus says, John lived a serious, rigorous life, and the world called him nuts. I lived, Jesus said, an exuberant life, and the world called me a playboy. People of fickle faith really only believe in themselves and not God. People of fickle faith are not wrestling with doubt as much as they are wrestling with authority. People with a fickle faith only accept the world's way of doing math. They can't accept the spiritual arithmetic of the gospel. People of fickle faith will show up once a year on Easter Sunday, but they won't get here on Good Friday or any other Sunday in between. People with honest doubt, however, wrestle through the apparent contradictions. Between the contradiction of this Jesus who they believe rules the world and yet a world in which they see that still agonizes with pain and suffering. This distinction between honest doubt and fickle faith best comes into focus when Jesus turns the question, our questions to him, around on us. He quotes those of a fickle faith, but the quote is meant to be ironic, I think, when he says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. That's intended as a slam against John and Jesus, but Jesus is kind of turning it around because there's a truth in that, but they're just they're not getting the truth of it. This difference between honest doubt and fickle faith becomes apparent when Jesus turns the question around on us. Are you the one? Is not just a question for Jesus, beloved, are you the one is a question for his body, the church. Are you the one, or should we look for someone else? If the world still has honest doubts about Jesus, it may very well be because of the fickle faith of the church. So much to say here, but I'll say simply this. We talked about it at our Lenten Wednesday service. Wish you If you hadn't, great conversation. But it's this simple, one way to think about the honest doubts of the world and maybe sometimes the fickle faith of the church. Beloved, could I pray, could I ask as believers in Christ, as the church, instead of getting so angry over the world's doubts about Jesus, instead of getting so fired up and so just mad at people who have doubts about Jesus, Instead of holding people responsible for rejecting Jesus as we are often want to do as the church, can we instead hold ourselves responsible for sharing Jesus and representing him well? If we profess that Jesus is the one, that there is no other, our convictions are best evidenced by going and telling what we see and hear. That's what Jesus says to John's disciples go and tell what you've seen and heard. The truth of our faith in Jesus is most evident not by our attendance in church, not by how many scriptures we have memorized, not by whether we, any of the, the, the different measurements that we've created. Our faith in Jesus is most evident, most clear to see when we live what we believe, when we give away what we have received, when we follow him into the darkness and doubt of others. That's why, that's why, following him into the darkness of doubt of others, that's why we feed the hungry. That's why we give drink to the thirsty. That's why we clothe the naked. That's why we house the homeless. That's why we visit the sick. That's why we befriend the friendless. That's why we give money to go farther around the world than we can go ourselves helping others. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ because he's first done it for us. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ so that others might hear and see. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ so that the mercy of God in his gospel might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And let's keep it real. We may not rescue. We cannot help. We cannot heal. We will not save everyone. But he does. He can. He will. All we can say. The best that we can do, and yes, it is good enough to those with questions, to those with doubts, is to say in their darkness and in their doubt, move over. In the name of Jesus Christ, we're coming in with you. We're coming in with you in the midst of your shadow of doubt. Because the light is coming. He will save us both. Do not be afraid. The tension. The tension between faith and doubt. Between truth and contradiction. In many ways, it's what this table that we come to each and every Sunday is all about, isn't it? Before us, we see nothing but wafers of bread and shot glasses of wine and juice. But as they're put into our hands... We're called to believe that Jesus himself is present in, with, and under such mundane elements. Though it makes no sense, though we cannot explain it, though we may even have our questions and our doubts as we kneel at this rail, we come forward with willing hands in faith, trust, and hope and as we take bread that has been broken as we drink wine that has been poured we profess that we receive more than a memory we feast on more than food we confess that we have fed on forgiveness that we have experienced grace We declare that even when we have not been rescued out of all of our problems, we have still tasted salvation through the presence of God with us in Jesus Christ, a relationship that extends beyond this life into the life that is to come. What we receive, we take with us. What we taste, hear, and see and receive from this table, we go and tell We follow and we obey, we imitate and we extend the ministry of the presence of Jesus Christ into the world as far as we are able. Beloved, honest doubt is not a threat, but a vital part of a deepening relationship, a maturing faith in Christ. Jesus welcomes, Jesus can handle all of our questions. We must hold nothing back. But we must let our questions and our doubts press us deeper into the reality of his presence and into the assurance of his promises. Because there's no one else to expect. There's no one else to look for. There's no one else who can save us. Amen? Amen.